everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Have you ever had a close encounter with death? Like one of those stories that you tell sometimes, like, dude, I almost died. Like, do you, do you have any of those stories? I... I was fly fishing with my buddy Landon um, a couple years ago. We were down in Deckers, and you don't need to know anything about Deckers other than there's this like kind of highway that crosses the river right where the best fly fishing is. And to get there, you park in this parking lot, and you kind of have to walk across the highway, and then you follow the highway on the shoulder for a little bit, and then you drop down into the river. So we're talking, and Landon's a dear friend, and we're walking shoulder to shoulder, and he's deep telling me about something that's going on in his life. When all of a sudden, all I feel him do is just lightly reach over and grab my shoulder, and he does one of these moves and pulls me in front of him. Which I'm like, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, this truck goes by at about 55 miles an hour. I'm like, oh, you just saved my life. Thank you. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's my most recent one. I don't know if you have any of these. Um, but there's, there's stories of, I almost died. And then there's stories of, I almost died. And as I was thinking about what we're going to be talking about today for this week, I was looking up stories of assassination attempts. Because what we're going to read about today is an assassination that happens. I don't know if you've ever had an assassination attempt on your life. I have not. It's not an invitation. Please don't try. Um, but but there, there's so many stories throughout history. And the further I got in, all of a sudden it just clicked. Like, I don't have to tell you a historical story. Because there are attempts on people's lives that are happening all the time. One of them hit headlines just about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And I hope, as we talk about Paul Pelosi, that regardless of your political persuasion, you can put that aside and just see the humanity of this situation real quick. I don't know how much of the story that you know. The broad strokes are somebody breaks into his house. They're looking for his wife, Nancy Pelosi, who's a senator. She's not home. And so this guy who broke, breaks in just sits, like he kind of corners him in the bedroom and just says, like, I'll wait. We'll just wait for her to get home. And Paul is like, what, like, what do I do with this guy? Somehow manages to call 911 but gives a really garbled message. So a police officer shows up at the door. And I just, I just want you to imagine this from the police officer's point of view. The door opens. Two men are standing there. When all of a sudden, the man standing in back brings out a hammer and, and now is trying to actively kill the person in front of you. As a police officer, you've now got to react in this situation. This is a wild story. And I think for me, like, there's moments when I talk about Deckers and then, and he saved my life. Like, that's one thing. But when there's an assassination attempt, the questions that you find yourself asking after an event like that are so much different. And again, political persuasions aside, I, I just can't fathom the conversations that have been happening in their home and in the homes of their closest friends and family all week this week. Is it still worth it? Should we still keep doing this? Because is it going to happen again and again and again? And, and there's this gravity that starts to hit of like, there's stories of, man, I almost died. And then there's stories of, man, I almost died. And they hit at different levels. And the story of Jesus that we're going to be reading today, we, we have to read through the lens of the writer of the story. 
Because I think Matthew, similar to how you may be in now the shoes of Paul and Nancy Pelosi going, is it worth it? Like that happened. It's, it's a tailspin type of a situation. Matthew's gonna write down this story in a, in a really unique way. You, you might expect to hear the story of the crucifixion be told from this place of, here's what happened, here's what's going on in Jesus, here's what he's thinking, here's all the meaning and the philosophy and the theology behind it. And frankly, Matthew doesn't care that much <laughs> about those things. Matthew, as he's documenting the story for his original readers and for you and for me, is writing down this story going, I, I want you to see something of tantamount importance. And in fact, the way I'm gonna write it, I'm gonna write characters in, I'm gonna write some themes in here. I wanna make sure that you don't miss the invitation that I'm giving you and the question that I'm asking you. And it's really important. When there are martyrs, uh, especially in the first century, martyr is just a fancy name if you've never heard of this before, of somebody who's killed for a cause that they believe in. In the first century, especially for the early church, if you were killed as a, as a Christian martyr, killed for what you believed in, oftentimes the stories that you would hear told afterwards, there would be some speech or there would be some nugget of that story that you would go, that gives me hope. Like that, that gives me courage to keep going in. As we read this story, I want you to keep in mind, what's it like for Matthew to kind of be a, a survivor himself of this whole account? And, and what's it like too for these original readers as they're going, is there a nugget of hope in this story? Was there a speech made at the end that just helps me have courage to keep going? Today we're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew. We, we've only got three weeks left. And we're going to be wrapping that up. And today is one of those weeks. We're in chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 32 today. Steve, if you were here last week, did a great job of walking us through the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus. It's amazing how quiet he is through that entire ordeal. One part that we didn't read last week that we're not going to read today is that Jesus goes immediately from that trial. He gets taken into the praetorian guard. He gets taken essentially into the barracks, the courtyard of the barracks where they dress him up as a false king and they smack him around. They whip him within an inch of his life. And then they're gonna tie what becomes the cross beam of the cross, just, just that horizontal beam. They're gonna tie that to his arms and they're gonna have him walk through the city of Jerusalem up this hill and that's where we're gonna catch up to our story today. We're gonna to start in chapter 27, verse 32. And this is how the story goes. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. He's an African in this story. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink. They mixed it with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. One quick note on this detail. This is kind of a bizarre detail to us. But one thing, and, and there's like a lot of disagreement on what exactly this was, but there's a general agreement on this is likely painkiller. For all of the like awful atrocity that's been happening for the intentional torture that's happened to Jesus, this is likely wine mixed with something like hemlock or maybe poppy or something like that. Like this, this is supposed to be like, we're gonna help knock you out. He refused to drink it. That's really an interesting detail when you wrap your head around that. Why? 
What about this whole situation was Jesus saying, I need to feel the fullness of what's going on. It's fascinating. Let's keep reading, verse 35. When they had crucified him, do you notice how quickly Matthew just jumps over? Like, what ha- did they nail into his wrists and into his feet? He just says, he's been crucified. That's all you need to know. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, rolling dice. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Do you hear that? Eli, Eli. They're thinking, oh, Elisha. He's, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and he got a sponge. He filled it with a wine vinegar. He put it on a staff, and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Again, what's going on in Jesus' mind? Like what what else is happening? We're not getting a lot of detail. We're gonna jump down to verse 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. So Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary we're sitting opposite the tomb. To be continued. It's a weird story how Matthew writes it. What's going on with Jesus? Like he's, he's essentially writing about everybody else. Here's these two rebels that are crucified next to him. Here's what all the crowd is saying about him. Here's these women who are there. Here's Joseph. And you're the whole time going, this is the chosen one. This is Jesus. He just died on the cross and you're talking about everybody else in the crowd. What are you doing, Matthew? And I would submit to you, I think we're watching a master writer invite us into this story in a way that is profound. So what we're gonna do with our morning this morning is kind of rewind and we're gonna look at different chunks of this story to figure out what is it that Matthew's wanting us to see. And one of the things, one of these groups of people that leaps off the page, we haven't talked about them a lot, are a group of people that existed at this time, a highly religious group of people, and they're called the Zealots. We talked about them way at the beginning of our study on the book of Matthew. But this was a group of Jewish people 
who really believed. We've got the Roman Empire. They've invaded our country. They've taken over power of the whole temple area, everything about our country. We want them gone, and our solution to that is violence. Uh, If you have not yet seen the show The Chosen, I would highly recommend that you watch this show. There's a beautiful several vignettes that they zero in on one of Jesus' disciples. His name is Simon the Zealot. And you really start to see, if you're a zealot, you're a trained assassin. That is your job. Your hope is as you're looking at the enemy that you are slowly sharpening your knife to be like, I'm gonna get my pound of flesh and we're gonna take the hill back. That's what we're here for. And so these zealots have shown up now in these last couple chapters of Matthew in ways that have been kind of hard to see. There's a couple, couple things I would want to point out to you. One, Judas, Judas Iscariot. There's a little bit of contention about this. When you dig into his story, Judas, that's his first name, Iscariot, Ish is this idea, the man from the region of Cariot. That's his name. Cariot, when you dig into the geography, was a, was a region that was held by the zealots. So it is highly likely that Judas also, like Simon, is a zealot who started following Jesus a while back and has now been around Jesus for a long time. Some people even say this may have been some of his motivation for handing Jesus over to the chief priest to be betrayed because he wanted to incite a rebellion and thought he could help. I don't know if that's true. What I do know is true is that Barabbas We just met Barabbas in this last chapter, and if you've never heard this story before, it's a a brilliant, awful story, where there was a prisoner exchange that Rome would do every single year. They would pull out one prisoner and, and say to the crowd, we'll release one person, who do you want? Now Jesus has just been brought in. Everybody knows, this is such a ruse. This dude's innocent. And Pilate, who's this Roman governor at the time, (laughs) hoping that he can get off the hook for everything that's going on, brings Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth in front of the crowd. And almost like pushing Jesus of Nazareth forward is like, who do you want me to give back to you? And they go, we want Jesus Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. He said, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Barabbas, the, the word that we get as we read the text Barabbas the Zealot. What was Barabbas arrested for? I don't know exactly, but I can tell you if he is a zealot, at the very least he was stealing from the Roman Empire as an act of terrorism. I think it's highly likely that actually what we see when we see Barabbas is we're seeing an assassin who was caught in the act. That's who's there. So Judas, we've got Barabbas. I think the most incredible thing that's hiding in plain sight, the word that we get in verse 38, two rebels were crucified with him. That's the best we could do with the English translation without having to explain a whole lot more context. The word two rebels that's used there, really if you would translate it directly from the Greek, two zealots were crucified on either side of him. Who were these zealots? What was their whole thing? We've we've talked about it a little bit, but it makes total sense in this part of the story. What's happening in the area of Jerusalem is we've had this Passover feast. Jewish people from all over the world, we just met Simon of Cyrene. He came from North Africa to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. People are coming from all over the place. And of course, if you're a part of like a revolutionary or some might even say terrorist cell, You're gonna look for strategic moments in history to go, when can we try and make the biggest difference? 
you know what, when everybody who's from our faith base, when everybody swells up into this town, this would be the best moment. Because if we could turn the tide in this war, we've got numbers on our side like we won't have any other time in the year. And when people would come in for Passover, they would usually stay about another 50 days through another celebration called Pentecost. So Simon is probably just on holiday retreat. He's on a pilgrimage himself. He wanted to go to the motherland. And all of a sudden, he's looking at this scene that's unfolding before him going, what the heck? These zealots, I think, were wanting to take advantage of the situation and the timing. Why was Barabbas in jail at that time? I think because he was strategic. What was going on with these two zealots that are crucified on either side of Jesus? I think they were fighting. I I think they were trying to really push an agenda forward. If you're a zealot, and this is both past tense and present tense, there is a sense in a zealot of certainty, of imposition. I know what is right, and I am willing to press it on everyone around me. That's the heart of a zealot. And I think if you could capture it in a phrase, you might say, zealots are the ones who are going, I'll tell you exactly what I'm willing to kill for. That's who's betrayed Jesus. That's who Jesus has taken the place of in Barabbas. That's now who's hanging on the sides of Jesus. Matthew, as a writer, is going, this is one way to engage the world around you. Engage it like a zealot. Fight back, sharpen your knife, take your pound of flesh and scream at the top of your lungs. And these zealots, they're a wild and gnarly bunch. And they, they stand out like a sore thumb in stark contrast to another group of people that especially if you're a first century reader of this story, you're going, oh my, he did not just go there. And we miss it because it's, it's normal in our culture today. But if your eyes were to hit verse 55 and then to continue to read, you'd be like, they shouldn't be in this story. Why is Matthew writing about them? Who are they? Many women. In, in the first century, especially in a Jewish culture, women weren't allowed even to give testimony in a court of law. It's like it didn't matter. Like your, your voice didn't matter in that place. You were not an authoritative source of truth. I think something that we would look at and go, what? And I think something that the God of the universe would look at and be like, I never said that. But that was the culture that Matthew was writing to. And so if he wants to tell an authoritative story and say, this is what happened, here's the heroes of the story, when he introduces this group of women, you, I mean, there's, a, there's an audible gasp that would have gone through the original room that's hearing this story. Because he doesn't just mention them. Matthew's doing something here with his readers that he's going, you wanna know who to watch? You wanna know who to learn from? This is like a moment in a Broadway play where you've been watching it the whole time and all of a sudden a side character, somebody that you thought like they have a really small role, they haven't said a lot, The lights go dark, the spotlight comes on, they walk to center stage, and you get this solo from them that fundamentally changes the course of how you understand this story. That's what Matthew is doing right now. He's shutting off all the lights, going, where are the 11 disciples that are left? Lights off. Where are the chief priests? Where are the rulers? Where are the people who should be the religious folk in this? We're gonna turn the lights out on them. Where are the zealots? They're they're like the heroes. They're the ones out there on the front lines doing, we're gonna turn the lights out on them too. And as he's turning off all these lights, 
the only group of people left standing is a group of people who have been following Jesus now for years. You could look at them and with great authority say, these are the most faithful, these are the best students, these are the ones who understand. And what is it that they're doing? There's a response of following Jesus that says, I just want to stay with him. This is the response of a true disciple. The whole idea of being a student of a rabbi was whatever they do, I want to be exactly like them. I want to do whatever it is that they do. I will not leave their side. And as we get to the end of the story, what students are left? Many women. We hear uniquely about three of many women were there. So what is Jesus doing? What is it that they're continuing to reflect as they're watching their rabbi teach? Well, I think in stark contrast to the zealots, we go, well, they're not fighting back, at least not kind for kind. And why? I think it's because they've been paying attention to Jesus. He's not trying to establish a kingdom of earth from this earth. He's trying to establish the kingdom of heaven on this earth. So he does not need to preserve the earth itself or his life or his body. He does not even need to preserve the old powers that have made this all possible, power and violence and oppression. He's not going to use those tools anymore. These women could have struck out, they could have fought back, they could have tried to get him down off the cross. It seems this is what the soldiers were waiting there for, this is why they were standing guard. They could have tried that, but they don't. They sit, and they watch, and they trust, and they doubt, and they're confused, and they're weeping, and they stay. I think we see them trusting. Did you hear the martyr speech in this story at the end? If you missed it, it was one sentence from the one who's being killed. And the martyr speech was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What kind of a speech is that? (laughs) If it's supposed to bring some sense of comfort and courage and remind me to keep going, that's it. I think at first blush, it might look like that. But I think that there is something that Matthew is going, hey, if you're looking at this rabbi, Jesus, if you're thinking about following him, if you call yourself a follower of him, be comforted by these words. This is a good thing. It's not like we'd expect... It's not like we'd expect but do you notice the words themselves? What does he say? My God, my God, why? And I think in this moment, with everything going on, in every, with every right to just be like, all is lost, darkness and death, I'm, I'm gone. In these last moments, we see Jesus going, you know what's the most true thing? I still believe. I am still holding on, I still trust. Not even this can knock me off of that foundation. God is true and real, even when I'm asking the question, why? Emmanuel, if if there's ever a place where you can look at Jesus, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus, whether you're just checking this guy out, 
there's ever a place where you go, I can identify with that. And he can identify with me. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Why? Because if you have, I just, I want you to see the, the, the incredible brilliance of Matthew as a writer. He's saying, you believe in God when you pray that prayer. Just because there's doubt and just because there's concern doesn't mean that he's not there. Even Jesus, in his darkest moment, prayed that prayer. So this is now, I think, where we can begin to bring things pretty full circle. There's a brilliant author named James Cone who in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, says this as he's looking at this whole situation around the cross and around suffering. He says this, suffering naturally gives rise to doubt. How can one believe in God in the face of such horrendous suffering? Doubt is not a denial, but an integral part of faith. It keeps faith from becoming sure of itself. But doubt does not have the final word. The final word is faith giving rise to hope. Let me read to you the martyr's speech from Jesus' story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The final word here is not doubt. It is faith. You are still God. You are still there. I do not understand. And man, if there is a prayer that I know is on the tip of so many of our tongues today in the world that we live in, in the stories that we live, it's this. And to just make sure you're capturing it, Matthew is writing to the first century church. This is a group of people who if they choose to follow Jesus, most of his audience is Jewish themselves. A, they're living in the Roman Empire, where to say that there's any other king but Caesar is an immediate death sentence. He's also writing to a group of predominantly Jewish people, so to say, hey, there's more going on with God and with the Bible than just what we get in the Old Testament. It meant a death sentence. So Matthew is writing to this group of people going, man, there's so much that I could say, but instead of like wrapping ourselves up too much in this time, going up like looking at what's Jesus feeling and where'd the nails go and all these details, I want you to see all the people's reaction to what's going on. Because if you're gonna make it as a follower of Jesus, you need to see two things. First, you need to hear the martyr's speech at the end because you will need to memorize that speech. God, why? It's a good speech. And the second thing you need to do is you need to look at these women. They're the best students, top of their class. On the tip of their tongue is a speech and it goes like this, God, why? And they get it. And they don't leave and they don't run and they don't fight back and sharpen their knife. They stay with Jesus. I'm gonna invite the band back out. I hope that today are words of incredible comfort to those of you that came in asking the question, God, why? You have plagiarized one of the best speeches in history. And I hope as you struggle and wrestle in the doubt that you know that doubt does not have the final word but that it leads to faith 
which leads to trust, which leads to hope. I hope that today is a challenge to those that came and gone, life's good, I'm doing great. There are places in the world where people are suffering violently, places that need a healing touch. And if this is a prayer that you find yourself being repelled from, not wanting to pray, not wanting to get too close to situations like this and people like this, if there's anything we've seen in this character of Jesus, is that there's this consistent welcome to go, do you wanna know where I am? Do you wanna know the people and the situations that I'm gonna be with? You wanna come find me? You wanna know me? Go there. Places where there is oppression, places where there are systemic problems that are wrong. You want to know me? Do you want to be with me? Do you want to understand my heart? Do you wanna hear from me? Meet me there, that's where I am. I think sometimes you can read a story like this, you can hear the martyr's speech in this story and you can go, this Jesus is weak. (laughs) But I think Matthew's going, well, what's your option? You could be like a zealot. (laughs) You could have things that you could say, this is what I'm willing to kill for. But I don't think it's surprising at all as we've read this story that Matthew has told that we would see Jesus on a cross not saying, let me tell you what I'm willing to kill for. That's not a voice of love. I very much think that Matthew's going, see this Jesus, whose statement as he's closing his life, let me tell you what I'm willing to die for. He gave his life as a ransom so that you could come back home. That's this story. If you wrestle with doubt, it's okay there is still a prayer to be prayed. And you are welcome to pray it in this place and in every place. We're gonna take some time to just sing about this. If this is the first time that you've heard this story and you're like, this is, this is amazing. Like, do I need to know more? Is there more to this story? Where do I begin? I would tell you this. You've got everything you need right here. If you've been asking that question, why God? Let me just assure you, you're on the right path. There'll be folks at the end of the service that will be up here on the stage, folks who are elders and leaders in our church that would love to pray with you and hear your story, talk with you, answer questions, really just pray. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to sing. God, this is not just some simple story of, man, I almost died. This is a story of a successful assassination that should leave the rest of this room, the original room, Matthew wondering, is it worth it? Should I do this? I pray for the courage myself, and I pray for that for everyone here, that we would not be afraid to pray the prayer, God, why? that doubt would not be held as some mutually exclusive idea that means, well, clearly then God doesn't exist or I don't belong, but that it's something where we find so much solidarity in you, Jesus. Let that doubt not be the final word, but let it lead to faith 
which opens the door to hope. And let us offer that hope to the world around us, which needs it so badly. Jesus, you're so kind that this would be the speech that you would leave us with. Help us to have the courage to pray with you. Amen.